Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Revenge, the next person to cut me off in traffic is going to get a hot slice of foot-in-the-ass pizza. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Queens Boulevard. Watch the film that swept Sundance with breakout star Vincent Chase in the newly restored four-hour director's cut, Queens Boulevard. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. We do the things uh, with, with film, I guess. And part of that process is analyzing, reevaluating, um, getting better, reworking you know, what you've done. I think the hardest part of writing for me has been rewriting and getting comfortable with going back, hitting delete starting over again and trying, you know, see what else I can do. Uh, that's a really tricky process because it's hard to reimagine something that you've already done. Um, it's like, Hey, if you could, you know, wake up again this morning, how would you do it differently? Like, I don't know. I've already done it. (laughs) That was the way I did it, but you do, you have to kind of reimagine what's another way I can approach, you know, X, Y, Z. And I don't know, paradoxically, I guess, but uh, I want to reimagine the way we opened the show last week. Uh, So, because I normally try not to do two openers the same. Um, If we've done a 206 episodes, hopefully, you know, we've had about 200 unique openings um, discussing this and that. And so, especially back-to-back episodes. And so this week, I actually kind of want to revisit uh, last week for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't even talk about why. So the topic last week, uh, in case you missed it, is what is the the conflict or how does it feel to not be original, to retread old ground? And the reason that came to mind as a, as a topic was because I've had this idea for years, a story idea about teleportation. And to me, I had this really unique wrinkle on it. Uh, I was like, oh man, it's, it's, and I, I don't want to spoil it for reasons that'll become obvious here in a moment. But I was just really interested in my take because I hadn't heard it or seen it before. You know, we tend to watch Star Trek and say, oh, you know, beam me up, Scotty. And, you know, it's all seamless, right? And so I, I like the idea of I'm going to reimagine it uh, in my own way where, I put kind of a microscope on the use of technology and how we think we use it versus how it maybe actually gets used. Uh, and so there was just some fun stuff that I was doing with there. And then, I don't know, I, I went down some Reddit rabbit hole and lo and behold, my idea has not only been done, it was done before I was ever born. Oh <laughs> like, my gosh. And so apparently there's an episode that covers almost exactly what I imagined uh, in either the outer limits or uh, what's the other one? Twilight zone. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which Uh, I haven't seen it. Um, I've seen some of those uh, episodes. My growing up, my mom loved twilight zone. So uh, I'd watch it periodically. I only remember two episodes. Well, three, if you count the ones that I didn't see that I was told about, Uh, but I was just kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, Wes, you are not nearly. And then as that thread went down, I saw like multiple versions have been done of that thing. And so not only was I not the first, I wasn't even the second. <laughs> like It was just on down. It's turtles all the way down. And then someone, though, said, you know, what you should do is read uh, The Jaunt. It's a Stephen King short story. So I went and uh, found this short story by Stephen King called The Jaunt. And it's this whole story about teleportation. Um, and it's 
incredible. Uh, it's maybe a 25 minute read. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. And I was just blown away because it was, it was fresh. It was not my idea or the other, you know, dozen variations of my idea, quote unquote, my, obviously not. Um, <laughs> right. And so, uh, but reading his version was like, man, he took a really interesting idea and did his own thing with it. That is uniquely Stephen King. And it kind of goes back to that thing you said last week, which is uh, if you feel like you're treading water, like it needs more you. That's that's the real solution is to give it more you. And Stephen King, God. And what really blew my mind was his. he wrote his short story in 1981. But when you read it, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, 40 years old. It feels like it's, you know, five years old. <laughs> it's just, wow. uh, it's timeless because, you know, when you approach certain topics in certain ways, uh, it can have that effect. And I was just really impressed, you know, obviously one's usually impressed with Stephen King and he does some weird Stephen Kingy things. If you've read, and I've only read, you know, seven or eight of his books in some of seven of them were just one book, right? The, the dark tower series is just seven books, but it's one thing. And I read that. And I think the stand as far as this fiction goes. Yeah. And so it's just, uh, it's okay to not be original is what I walked out of our, our last conversation with. And the next day, um, I was feeling fresh. Like I just finished this big rewrite of a feature script. And so, I just sat down and I was like, okay, don't be afraid for once. Don't be afraid of not being original. And so I sat down, outlined a story. I love, we, we covered the movie once. Um, it's this uh, quote unquote musical. We don't consider it a musical, but I think it falls into that category. And I loved it, right? I love that film. And I was like, I want, I've been fascinated with the, one of the shots in there. Um, it's the opening shot of him busking on the street and I've been wanting to just do that shot, uh, jonesing for it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write once. And I'm going to do what Todd says he does. Is I'm going to write this thing. I'm going to make it as close as I can. And then do whatever I feel I need to do to make it mine. And I did. Uh, I wrote the outline in whatever, 15 minutes. I, emailed, I texted you. And I was like, hey, have an idea. It's my version of once. We're going to make our own once. And I was like, I'll... I'll write it and I'll email it tomorrow. I'm, I'm done for the night. And so I went and started cooking dinner um, and I couldn't let it go. And then an hour and a half after I sent that text, I sent the, <laughs> I sent those. Yeah. It was like very, <laughs> very soon after we sent the whole script. It's one of the fastest things I've written. Normally, you know, you sit down to write and it feels like 10 minutes, but it's actually like two hours, three hours. This I wrote while making and cook, uh, while cooking dinner and eating dinner, I wrote it, um, proofed it and sent it, uh, in 90 minutes. And so that was, you know, definitely really, really fast. What did it feel like? I mean, it felt great. I felt like, you know, this is, it was an interesting experience to, to do it that way of, I like this thing. I like James Bond. I'm going to make my own anti James Bond, right. I'm going to make Indiana Jones. I, it makes me wonder if there's something to that. Like I, I really try, uh, to, to make my own stuff and it's mine. Um, and this is Wes and not necessarily because of ego. Like I want it to be like, I, I don't, you know, bite off of other people, even though I have and whatever you, you deal with that and you move on. Uh, but also just because I want to see something that I don't see. Um, and mm-hmm. I do want my work to stand out as my own work. 
uh, and it's a tricky thing. And so walking into this saying, I'm going to make a version of once that's mine and own it. Like, I think that was the hard part is just getting over myself and saying, it's okay to say I was inspired by someone else's work. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I'm not Glenn Hansard, so you're not going to get <laughs> once. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. going to be like that. It's going to be its own thing. And when you get into the edit, you might see something different than how you initially wrote it. And I think that because you only spent two hours in total on the whole thing, at least, you know, in writing it, maybe you'll be more inclined to be okay with doing a pivot in the edit. If, if you see something that you weren't planning on, right. And mm. instead of being like, you know, you know, laser focus on something you've been working on for two years, you, you, ha you know what you want it to look like. Right. And some, maybe something like this, you're not so invested in it. Yeah. It's, it's a passion project that you want to just make because your buddy's in town and let's make something. So, so when you get in the edit, you're like, Oh, you know what? I wrote it to be this, but maybe it's actually this. And then you, you just like change. I'm not saying that it would be that way. I'm just saying you, you might be more inclined to be okay with that because we're just making something. We're just making a piece of art and whatever it turns into, it turns into. Hell yeah. So, but yes, I'm not Glenn Hansard. You're going to get not that. By chance, <laughs> are you Damien Rice? <laughs> <laughs> By chance, I am not either okay, okay. <laughs> uh, of we'll those amazing artists. So yeah. um, uh, it was it's actually interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I went to an open mic with my neighbor and uh, we were just going to check out this open mic um, just north of us. And and this these two ladies covered uh, Volcano, Damien Rice song. And it, it was good. You know, it was good. But they were covering it like happy, happy, happy oh. and shit. And I was. And I was freaking out about it because I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard this song in forever. And this album destroyed me. It, like, changed my life. And uh, I was telling my neighbor about it. And he was like, he had never even heard of Damien Rice. And I said, oh, my God, you need to immediately go home, open a bottle of wine with your wife and cry. Listen to Oh. Yeah, exactly. And and just, like, just be there, you know, in the space, uh, whatever, with her for an hour so no, you're, I'm not Damien Rice, but um, I definitely, I definitely draw from artists like that. For some reason, you know, like I've sat down and tried to write, you know, pop songs. I mean, for a lot of my career, I was writing, you know, pop songs and stuff, but that's not ever what really drove me. Like, hmm. the, I, you know, I would sit down to try to do that and it'd be hard to do. But then the moment that I would sit down and like not think about anything what would come out would be something that was, I mean, for lack of a better term, more substantial, I guess. I'm not saying that pop music isn't substantial. It definitely can be. And there's, I think a lot of art, there's several artists today that can write substantial pop songs that are, that are, you know, they follow formula, but if you listen to the lyrics and you, and the emotion in the, in the songs, like you can really hear that sustenance. But, um, but I, I was always gravitated towards, you know, yeah, like Glenn Hansard and, and Damien Rice and Nick Drake and, you know, artists where it's like it was always more about the the, the overarching feel hmm. than it was about that specific word you said or the phrase you said. It was like, you know, you'd listen to a song and and you obviously the lyrics are incredible, you know, listen to, to Damien Rice and the lyrics are incredible, but it's more about the feeling you get when you're done with a song.
where does it leave you? Hmm. If it leaves you in a place where that's different from where you started, then that's way more substantial to me than, you know, even listening to something like U2. U2, like Bono is an incredible lyricist. If you listen to it, listen to Joshua Tree and it will destroy you. It's an, amazing. But there's something to listening to O that you do not get and you will never get from listening to even the best U2 album. And it's not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. And uh, I think you're similar in that regard where you like gravitate towards that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, in, including, you know, the movie we're going to cover today, I think mm-hmm. uh, I definitely have some comments um, because yeah. I, I, more than anything, I remembered how it made me feel. I really didn't remember, remember all the booby traps that are in this movie conversationally. (laughs) (laughs) And there are quite a few. There are. This movie is nothing but booby traps. Um, The the bomb maker did his job very well. Uh, Yes. But I just remembered like the experience of it and going through it and how it left me feeling at the end because you do, you know, go on quite a journey. Um, Yeah. uh, I guess we can, with that, like, what are we covering today? Yeah, so today we're covering Munich. So if you have not seen the film, please pause um, the episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about a few things. Um, we'll look at some of the cinematography. Not a lot. Uh, there's a really cool shot where I think they're heightening a moment through contrasting camera work uh, that in a way that isn't very typical of Spielberg. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we'll also look at some of the story and writing, uh, some of the questions being raised, maybe contextualizing the film a little bit uh, in multiple ways um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. Quick synopsis of the film. After the Black September capture and massacre of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics, five men are chosen to eliminate the people responsible for that fateful day. It's directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Tony Kushner and Eric Roth. It's based on the book by George Jonas. It's cinematography by Janusz Kaminski, featuring Eric Bana as Avner, Daniel Craig as Steve, Kiaren Hines as Carl, Jeffrey Rush as Ephraim, Michael Lonsdale as Papa, and Matthew Amalric as Louis. I want you to give me proof that everyone we killed had a hand in Munich. I don't discuss such things with people who don't exist. You want to discuss? Come back to existence. You want your daughter to grow up in exile. I want evidence. Professor Hamshari with a beautiful wife and child. He was implicated in a failed assassination attempt on Ben-Gurion. He was recruiting for Fatah France. You stopped him. We should have tried to bring him to Israel. As I ate him, you're a harmless little writer in Rome. He was behind the bomb on LL Flight 76 in 1968. He was working on another bomb last August. I could go on and on with According this According to evidence nobody has seen. If these people committed crimes, we should have arrested them. Like Eichmann. If these guys live, Israelis die. Whatever doubts you have, Afner. You know this is true. You did well, but you're unhappy. I killed seven men. Not Salame. We'll get him, of course. You think you were the only team? It's a big operation. You were only a part. Does that assuage your guilt? Did we accomplish anything at all? Every man we killed has been replaced by worse. Why cut my fingernails? They'll grow back. 
Did we kill to replace the terrorist leadership or the Palestinian leadership? You tell me what we've done. You killed them for the sake of a country you now choose to abandon. The country your mother and father built, that you were born into. You killed them for Munich, for the future, for peace. There's no peace at the end of this, no matter what you believe. You know this is true. So, man, I think, um, as, as I alluded to, like this film is talking about a lot of stuff, a lot of conversation going on in here. For one, I guess, what do you make of this in light of all the other Spielberg firm films we've been covering, right? We've up to this point, we've covered, uh, close encounters of the third kind, ready player one, Jurassic park, the Raiders of the lost Ark. And here comes Munich. How does this fit in to his uh, OVRA? <laughs> How do you, does this change at all the way you perceive Spielberg and his work? And yeah, what did you make of the film overall? Yeah, this is why Spielberg is Spielberg, <laughs> is a movie like this. We talk about sustenance. That's the, you know, the, the pop music was indie. Pop music was, I mean, you could even put, put Jurassic Park into that category. You know, to an extent, I think Jurassic Park is a little bit, you know, more sustenance, but this is his album he wanted to make for himself. This is his film he wanted to make for himself, I feel like. And this is one of the reasons why he's great is because of what he's able to do. He's able to take something that I think, you know, this generation was not privy to, right? You know, 90%, like most of the people who, you know, know this movie weren't alive during it during when this happened in 72 so to take you know a story that is very distant from most viewers and to make them feel it and then at the end of the day make them question whether or not you know the whole journey that this team went on was even worth it that's the kind of thing that like makes a film great it like makes it stick with you right you know, the whole point of Avner at the end, I mean, there, there's a, that whole section at the end where he is just warring with himself of what he did. And, you know, they, they at the dinner, I think at the beginning, when the whole team is together for the first time, you know, I think, or maybe it wasn't the first time, maybe it was like later on, one of the guys questioned, like, what did they do? And, you know, Avner's like, it doesn't matter. That, like, this is our mission. And at the end, He's questioning it now and he's thinking, I, I don't know what they did, but I was told to do this. And, and it's him warring with himself of, 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 you know, did this make a difference at all? Were we just replacing people, you know? And I loved the analogy of why cut my fingernails? They'll just grow back, but you do it anyway. It, it's just so, such good arguments on, on both sides that you can't help but think both could be right in some circumstance, right? If you're being, if you're being, you know, if you're stepping back and looking at the the full picture, it raises the question of of revenge. You know, it raises the question of uh, duty to country. It raises the question of of what your morals are and what are you willing to let die in yourself in order to be a good citizen or a good soldier or a good uh, anything that you are that you are committing yourself to, and. And the the way that the story was told was so amazing because you're with Avner, you're the whole time, 
you you almost never away from him. So you're thinking that the story is specifically him, but it's it's such a it, it has this like broader feel to it the entire time. And I think that's the genius of of Spielberg and a film like this finally, you know, this is what I miss. Like I'm not crazy about the lighting and half like a lot of the stuff. I don't like the lighting that they, that he does a lot. I really just don't. I think it's so hard and and aggressive in in moments where it doesn't need to be. Um, mm. you know, like when they're eating dinner for the first time it's so hard like the windows are completely blown out and i mean i guess i'm I'm imagining there's a point to that right i'm imagining this like we're not going to distract people by shit going on outside we just want them to focus on the on what's happening inside and so it very it, in in a sense it kind of shrinks the room right hmm. i don't see plants outside because i freaking can't see anything because it's blown out but um i really see the side of abner's face and there's like this hard you know, I can see one side and I cannot see the other side. It's almost like completely blacked out. And maybe that's the point, I guess. He's sitting at the head of the table. There's a dark side and a light side to him. But I'm just going to say that that's the reason and and go go with that. But that being said, the story is brilliant. It's super, it's complex. It highlights the complexity of, of Israel versus Palestine. It like, you know, uh, does a really good job uh, in in many ways of like trying to tell both sides, but in some ways it doesn't at the same time because how can't how can he how can he right to be honest? But tries to stick with the the purpose of their of their journey is to is to kill these these men, and then it it throws wrenches in at really good moments. The the scene we were just talking about like before this was the explosion scene where he, they almost blow up the little girl. And I, I, I didn't remember if they did or not. And, and I yeah. was on the edge of my seat watching this, like, Oh my God, Wes, I'm going to shoot you <laughs> in the face. If, if they kill this little girl, uh, cause I hate that stuff. And, and they don't. And yeah. it's, I'm so happy that they don't, but they, it did so much. It was, it was so much more effective to not, yeah. In this case, because and I just want to highlight this and then I'll let, I'll let you talk. But that specific scenario in every other scenario in the, in the whole movie stuck with me more because of the the terror that they had, the terror that Avner had and that oh, who's the guy on the phone? Um, yeah, that's Carl. Carl. That Carl and Avner had running to the car was so visceral that it did it did such a good job of conveying they don't want to do like they are they don't want to kill anyone at all none of them do it's let alone a little girl right the whole thing was to not hurt the little girl the whole thing was planned around not doing that and so by by them succeeding and not doing it but having the terror communicated to us through their actions like they they weren't they weren't they didn't care if anybody saw them running to the car. They didn't care about any of that. They were just like, we got to stop this, uh, was, was very good way to convey that their goals as a team, right. Of no cat, no, no civilian casualties. Just, we're just going after the, the men that we want to go, that we have to go after. That's it. It was an, it was an amazing moment where I, I then got to take a little breath too, as a, as a viewer, you know, and say, okay, it's not going to be that kind of movie. Mm. Okay. Now I can, I can continue on 
you know? Uh, so anyway. Yeah. And I love the way that scene develops because it's such great sequencing. Like we see the little girl develop before they do. And so we had this nice dramatic tension building, a lot of great suspense that, you know, starts to rise because of that. Um, and then as everything dawns, right, we see uh, Avner uh, realize it. And then we see uh, her pick up the phone, the light turn on, the tape start to be peeled away. Then we see the realization happen on uh, Carl's face. And it's in that moment. And I love this. They cut all the audio, cut all the ambient noise. And it just creates this vacuum, this massive empty void uh, that can only be filled by an explosion. Like it just, you just assume this is inevitable. Um, and it's just perfect. God, uh, because I, I've seen this five, six times. Um, uh, and I couldn't remember either. <laughs> I, I actually assumed, Oh man, they're, this is where they kill the little girl in my mind. They always kill the little girl. Um, thankfully they never killed the little girl. And so I was just ready for my heart to shatter again. And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, good, 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 good. And it's just the sequencing and the use of audio there is so profoundly impactful and just masterful uh, storytelling at the at the heart of it. Yeah, I mean, and I agree with your analysis on the, the cinematography. Some of it feels a little dated, uh, which is, I mean, this came out in 2005, which is not that long ago to me, pre and post the year 2000 as a dramatic change in style and tone uh, of, of filmmaking. And here he's using a lot of like promise filters, right. For this hazy dreamy quality, especially when they're in Israel, it's all the sky is blown out and it's all uh, creamy and fuzzy and all the highlights are very uh, uh, hazy and home is heaven. Right. And that, I think that's kind of the idea behind that um, in Israel, at least. Um, and then the rest maybe just, we see it fade over time. And when we're out of Israel, we start to see that glow start to soften. Um, I think is something they may be doing there. It's worth looking at, but regardless, I mean, it's overall pretty desaturated film, a lot of muted colors, just very dreary, very drab, not that kind of excitement, you know, visual uh, excitement, but very contrasty, right? Not a lot of details in the, in the highlights or the shadows. Um, and I think it, is very much that's the world we're living in where there's not a lot of gray area. Whenever you have low contrast, there's a lot of gray, uh, gray area when there's not right. It's just black and white. Everything is right and wrong. Everything is, uh, you, you're for us or you're against us. Right. Uh, and here they're wiping out all that gray area. And that's the point, uh, for sure. Mm. Um, yeah. it, it's very headsy in that way. Right. Yeah. While I'm, on cinematography like the there's a great oh, towards the end man when he's walking with his daughter across the street and he sees that car pulled out and you can feel his heart drop like i'm being the paranoia kicking in right and i love this sequence because one we've built up so much tension through he's been killing everyone but he's also been in hiding he's no longer in hiding anymore he's out in the open and that's kind of expressed just through the way they shoot him in this scene um, him crossing a, a, a crosswalk. There's no buildings to take cover. There's no trees. It's just him out in broad daylight, very vulnerable. And while they're shooting him, a lot of handheld, very shaky, very grounded, um, almost documentary style. Uh, and all that shaky camera work contrasts so brilliantly whenever we cut to the shot of the car's window being rolled down. 
because that thing is locked off tight, like not a wiggle in that camera. Um, and all you can see is the movement, like in the background, but the movement of that window being lowered, not all the way either. feels like we're in a gangster movie that, that hits about to go down. You just see very quickly mm, window drop uh, and our heart <laughs> drops with it um, and his as well. Uh, and it's just a sense of dread. It creates that contrast between calm, steady, uh, the sense that you're on rails, like a, uh, like a train, right? You're moving toward a destination, um, is perfect in the midst of all this shaky camera work. Uh, it creates a lot of dread and a sense of very, very tight focus, uh, on the attacker's part, which of course we realize pretty soon is littering, right? He's throwing a cigarette butt out. No, no, no attacker today. Yeah. But I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, this is one of my favorite Spielberg films. I wish we would see more of this kind of content, even if he doesn't want to tackle this area. Like I would love to just see him do more dramas, hardcore dramas, because uh, he does it so brilliantly. Um, he knows how to create a moment of dramatic tension, whether that's through the action sequences or just through the, uh, the arguments, right? We were listening to that argument, uh, the clip that I played a minute ago uh, between Avner and Ephraim, uh, played by Jeffrey Rush at the end there. And it's just, two people talking, um, but you feel uh, the tension between them and the way he blocks it, right? He has Avner walk way upstage so that whenever he turns around, he can charge him down and saying, did we do anything? Did we change anything? What was this for? Like, that's a dramatic argument that other directors uh, might've just had them standing face to face the whole mm-hmm. time. Spielberg said, no, I'm going to move him away from the camera so that he can then charge the camera. And that will reinforce uh, his emotional state as well as his uh, philosophical state like those things are both coming crashing down and Ephraim is absolutely impenetrable he doesn't move an inch yeah and that is pointed as well because um, that's the the state of Israel um, or at least uh, Mossad you know kind of talking at us there it's like hey you know you, you did what you told us to do uh, we told you to do that's that's kind of what matters yeah and it's it's brutal yeah but I I I love it. I I would love to see him do more films like this. I somehow doubt that's in the cards. He just seems to really enjoy making fun movies uh, for people to escape into, and that's that's okay too. You know, yeah. that's that's not wrong by any stretch. This uh, is definitely not an escape movie. No, no, it's one you wish you could escape from. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'll run through a few things um, and open it up because it, it's 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 a dicey one story and writing wise the subtitles i thought was interesting uh because they sometimes use them sometimes they don't so sometimes you know uh, they're not speaking in english and we have no idea what they're what they're saying uh and i love when they choose to subtitle versus when they don't because sometimes the words don't matter the scenario does the situation does um they just want you to imbibe it and digest what's happening on screen not what's being said. And that could be, there's a lot of scenes where that happens. Uh, one of them is when Daniel Craig's character, Steve is in the car with this woman and she's, they're about to do that first hit and he's got her talking and she stops. She's like, no, 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 keep talking. And that's when we realize they're not having a conversation at all. This is all pretense. This is all, uh, a, a setup, right? And yeah, and so they do that in, in other scenes where there clearly is a conversation going on. We're just not privy to it because it's not, it's not the point. Maybe it's because Avner doesn't understand or maybe it's because it's 
the only thing we're trying to engage in is the context of the scene, the energy of the scene sometimes. Um, yeah, I, I just found that fascinating. I think the tendency is translate it all, um, but uh, that's not always uh, beneficial to the viewer. Yeah. Questions being raised in this film. A lot. Mm-hmm. This is this is the meat of it right here. Well, there's one thing that isn't explicitly being questioned or raised, but I think it's uh, lightly, subversively uh, kind of implied just by nature of watching this movie, uh, which is, the, to me, the question would be, if it were raised within the film, which it is not again, um, is how did the media in televising the massacre impact the world? And this is an interesting one, especially in light of the final shot. Uh, try to remember this. I doubt I'll remember to, to revisit it, but try to remember that question. How did televising it impact the world? For one, the Olympics, from what I gather, this is such a crazy, everything about the timing of this is wild. Uh, we are at the 50th anniversary of this massacre this month. Like I, I just read a few minutes ago, uh, an article from a few days ago from the NPR discussing this uh going out i didn't finish the article but it was just like oh crap this we're we're on that anniversary we're also on the anniversary of 9-11 we're recording today sunday september 11th 2022 uh 21 years to the day of 9-11 and so whenever you think about these events there's especially uh, what what blows my mind reading that npr article about the 90 uh, 72 massacre uh in munich uh the olympics continued as scheduled, apparently, from what I understand, there was no break in the games. What? And so on. Yeah, that's wild, if if accurate, because there was one newsman that was like, man, on one TV, we have the hostage situation. And on the TV next to it, we have, you know, whatever pole vaulting like going on. And it was the most disturbing thing on I've ever seen on TV before in my life, you know, and you gotta believe that right that's that's incredibly disturbing and apparently you know this event had a big effect uh again according to that npr article prior to this you know massacre um televised massacre uh more or less that there were about 11 terrorist organizations and then within a few years afterwards there were over four times as many um there's like something of over 50 terrorist organizations now I don't know how they're counting terrorist organizations. Uh, that's that's a hard topic to tackle as well because who gets to determine who's a terrorist? Uh, usually, it's the government, and the government doesn't always have honesty um, in mind, right? They they have their own political agendas. As this movie beats into us, right? <laughs> like we we literally spent almost three hours discussing how looking at how Avner, Steve, Carl, bookkeeper the bomb maker all go after the, the 11 people responsible for the 72 Munich uh, uh, killings. And we get to the end of the film and find out maybe one of them kind of had something to do with it. Like they were serving a completely different agenda than the one they signed up for. That's wild. What? And so whenever someone says, you know, there's over 50 terrorist organizations, I don't know who's tallying that, what criteria they have for that. Uh, It's all very fluid depending on who's defining, right? Whoever gets to define the terms wins the game. Um, if I if I invent a game for you and I to play, I get to win because mm-hmm. I get to make the rules. And that's kind of implied. Um, and so other questions being raised, uh, again, that's 
a bigger question that I think as a viewer, you take away from it than anything Spielberg maybe was trying to create. But I'm not saying that's not a possibility as well, because we spend a lot of time watching news coverage of events. And so there might be something that he actually was trying to get to you about the way we consume, you know, the news or, or a million other things. Uh, we'll circle back to that maybe. Uh, so other questions is the one of the first questions that were asked, uh, is there morality, right? We get into this uh, conversation. There's this nice segue before Louie and Avner hook up, right? Louie provides all the intel um, for, for Avner to find and track these guys. Well, I love that we don't waste that connection. We spend time with Avner's old buddy, who's maybe a part of the Red Army faction or something else. And we're meeting this guy's girlfriend and she's uh, speaking, I don't know what she was speaking, German maybe, um, I forget. But she's having this whole conversation and asking if, you know, is there morality? Is there right and wrong? And she's having, she's posing these questions about what is the nature of right and wrong? Just the, the act of being alive and conscious creates right and wrong, you know? And it's all based on perception of who is right and who is wrong. And I find that interesting because when it comes to revenge or defending home or ideals, is there morality, right? And then they go a step further because the very first name that they get, the very first kill is this professor who's translating a Palestinian guy who's translating Arabian Nights and he's asking uh, his audience, right? He's just doing the street side talk and he's asking this really profound question about how does our own narrative inform our perception of morality, right? Does it justify our actions and how does it allow us to survive, or maybe just to endure. Uh, it's a really fascinating, you know, per perspective because that's kind of the history of mankind is one of us narrating our lives as, as the heroes in our own stories. Um, no one narrates their life saying that I'm the villain. And we talk about that a lot uh, in superhero films and other films, but it's way different to talk about it in this kind of context of a real world situation with people and, and real stuff at stake. Um, and so whenever you start bringing in the idea that uh, how our own narrative informs our perceptions of these things, that's fascinating. And that's, that is a question this movie is raising and it's asking repeatedly throughout the film in all kinds of situations, scenarios, and perspectives. And it, it begins, I, you know, might say with uh, Golda uh, Mir, uh, the prime minister, the woman at the beginning who, I'm not familiar with, um, I don't know her, her whole story. Uh, but you know, she says as prime minister, um, something profound and scary, uh, because she says every nation finds it necessary to compromise with its own values. Ooh, I mean, that's harsh, man. That's because that's, that's setting you up for, Hey, you know, I'm about to ask you to do a bunch of stuff. That's, it's going to compromise you, but it's, it's something that everyone does. And I mean, she's not wrong. It's, it's something for the greater good, whatever for that the might greater be. Good. Uh, I mean, every that is the history of the world as well. It's one of you know victors determining morality, and we'll see once we get to the end. Uh, no one's exempt because at the end of the day, everyone feels justified, no matter who you are. And in this film, everyone feels justified for their actions. We get an interview with the Black September terrorists. The, the three who escaped, they got away and they got whatever uh, brought back. Germany was left again with a, another hostage situation. And they said, 
free the Black September guys, um, the the remaining survivors, and they did. They gave them up, and then they're doing a press conference, and a reporter asked them point blank if they thought it was okay to kill all those Israelite Israeli uh, athletes, and this guy says he doesn't say yes or no. He just states his 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 reasoning is we have made our voice heard by the universe or the world who has not been hearing before he's justifying he's absolutely saying it was worth it because now people hear us and now people see us and then we get to the safe house with the plo uh which is a whole crazy sequence right because that that scene is them sleeping under the same roof in the same room with their enemy now the enemy doesn't know it but they do now, these particular people are not on their target list, but they are like their enemy. The PLO is the whole reason this movie says that uh, uh, Salome, um, who I think founded the PLO, uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, who uh, starts the Black September group, right? Uh, and this is what a lot of governments and uh, organizations, uh, political organizations do. They'll, they'll create these you know, groups that gives them plausible deniability, which again is what this movie is. Literally, you have Mossad creating a, a terrorist cell, right, through Avner and uh, his group in order to give plausible deniability to Israel to go and carry out all these, uh, you know, acts of revenge. And so that their voice would be heard and understood and recognized, right? Everyone's making the same argument. Um, and we get into this. And what's interesting uh, to finish that thought about this scene with the the PLO is this beautiful moment that they have with the radio sharing a roof and they begin fighting over the music. And then they both sit down, they turn the dial and they find common ground on Al Green. Yeah. (laughs) American music, right? It's some cultural middle ground that they find through a third party, um, which is, I don't know, maybe pointed, maybe, maybe not. But it's just nice that they had to, they had a moment where they saw eye to eye and like, yeah, we both like all green. We're both human beings. How about that? But then we cut to this conversation between Abner uh, and uh, the, this PLO guy. And Abner's, Abner's asking, you know, was the attack on Munich justified? Was what they did uh, justified? And this, this guy is like, hey, man, my father didn't gas anybody in, in Germany years and years of Palestinian blood being spilled by Israelis and who's mourning for us. Like what is he's justifying? Like, yeah, it's okay because this is what we need to do in order for us to be recognized and for people to understand that we're going through something too, because y'all are putting us in a cage and you're treating us like animals and people are going to start to wonder about the condition that you're leaving these animals in for them to want to bite everyone all the time. And it's a, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a question you have to wrestle with. And so, but what about our group, our gang, uh, Avner and Steve and Carl and, and the, the other two? Well, the first kill I thought was really interesting because you have this scene where, uh, this professor reads and then he goes to the store, he buys some wine, he buys some milk and something else, a jar full of something. And whenever they shoot him, he falls down, blood, uh, wine, and milk spill everywhere. And obviously the wine is kind of symbolic of, of blood. And it, I think that's a commentary on the promised land of milk and honey uh, because it's no longer a land of milk and honey, right? It's, it's now a land of uh, milk and blood. 
like you're you're soiling this land um and i don't think i'm fabricating that because immediately the next scene we get into a conversation right well for one let's touch on just that kill a moment here because avner man what a what a transition this guy goes through yeah he gets into this first situation pulls the gun on him asks confirms his name are you whatever he's like yeah he's like okay uh do you know why i'm here are you confirm your identity and this guy's like he's already did it he's already he's already confirmed who he is like he doesn't want to do this like you said earlier he doesn't want to kill anybody really when it comes down to it but he will he does and we'll we'll see how that changes later but they get back to the uh to celebrate right angels are rejoicing because the egyptians are drowned in the red sea and then you have carl saying god is watching you rejoice because you killed some of his people um he's like no uh, the angels respond to God. We're celebrating because the Egyptians now understand their point who held them hostage, right? Or whatever. And so there's this common, and the, I, I'm saying that's that's related, that's tied together with land of milk and honey because Moses is the one who was given the promise that they will find the land of milk and honey uh, in Exodus. And so, and he's obviously the one that crossed the, the Red Sea, split the Red Sea, all, all that fun, incredible uh, Bible work. Um, also some really solid writing, uh, yak, yak, yak. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so we move from there to the second kill, right? Which we've discussed with the, the little girl narrowly being avoided and a little bit easier, but we're no longer using the guns. Like we're much more interested in being away from that intimate relationship of killing. Now we just kind of want a bomb to do the work and remove ourselves emotionally just a little bit from what we're actually doing. But then as the story progresses after several kills, we, even we, the audience don't know, man, all the targets are starting to blend together. We have no idea who we're killing anymore, what specifically they did, what's their role in Munich. We don't know. And even less, we're starting to care less about bystanders. Like mm -hmm. we, we get to that scene towards the end with, uh, was it the PLO guys and the bomb doesn't work right. The one in the TV set. And he's, Avner's talking to the, the the bomb maker. He's like, trigger it. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Is he, are we sure he's alone? Just flip the switch. Mm -hmm. What a difference from confirming you got the right guy twice and avoiding killing a little girl. Now we don't care. Doesn't matter. Just kill them all. Kill everyone. Kill everything, which is what they do in that scene, man. That everything gets out of hand pretty quick. Yeah. And they try to pay off a guy like, and the guy could not care less about their money crazy sequence and what happens to the individuals steve has an interesting take because he never has any regret his his philosophy his the thing that he's raising is unless we learn to act like them we will never defeat them and that's kind of everyone's attitude it's like we need it's a race to the bottom right like whoever acts the worst wins uh and that's steve's mentality and to some degree it pays off for him uh because if we look at carl Carl starts showing regret about their tactics, right? He's the cleanup man. He's the guy that goes in, makes sure we didn't overlook anything. Ah, oh, you dropped a shell. I'm going to pick up this bullet casing um, so that we don't get caught. You know, if you leave a passport, I'll make sure, right? You don't get caught, whatever. It's, this is the guy. Uh, but he's starting to regret their tactics, right? Um, and he even has this point of conversation with Avner. Suffering thousands of, year does, thousands of years doesn't make you decent. We were righteous, that's Jewish. That's a beautiful thing. Right. And so he's starting to, to grapple with all the things he's done because even before this story started, he tells us I've been 
killing for this country for years. Um, don't you tell me about me being a coward or this, that, and the third. Then, of course, that's followed up by him being killed by the Dutch assassin. And that's brutal. Uh, that whole sequence of them killing uh, the assassin, right? The bookkeeper uh, kind of does the final blow. This is interesting, right? Killing the assassin because they go into her home. She's vulnerable, right? She's topless at the end of it. And she's shot. Then she goes to her cat. And then they give her a headshot and she's just left exposed, dishonored, right? This is a horrific scene. This scene really takes the breath out of you uh, because it feels way more personal than a big explosion that you can just kind of bury the, the intimate death, right? It's, this is, they wanted it to be close and personal. We're going to go in. Uh, we're going to make sure she knows it's us and we feel it, man. And she wasn't part of their mission. Off book. It was, it was pure, pure revenge for taking out Carl. You know, and 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 the way the older guy on the team, I forget his name, but the way he comes in and just finishes it off is and then and then he he leaves her exposed and then he it like feels really bad about it later. And that's right. You know, Abner tries to tries to say, you know, you were you were not yourself. And that that's why he takes his own life. I feel like you know? I agree. I agree. It's interesting because in that aftermath of killing her. Avner cooks this huge meal. No one's right. Everyone's wrong, um, like emotionally. And I think Avner's trying to recreate home and he's acting like his team hasn't fallen apart. There's three of them now. One's dead. One is mind is melted. Uh, the bomb maker, right? He's left and they're just shrinking bit by bit. Uh, and even Steve even makes a comment like, are you expecting someone? What's all this food for? We have enough food to feed Bangladesh. And, you know, uh, the bookkeeper won't even eat. He's just drinking himself away. Um, and that, and it gets into that conversation with him. Right. Uh, and he's, he's frustrated because each time we kill someone, we raise six more up in their wake. Um, and I, I keep seeing the Dutch woman. It's not that I wish we hadn't killed her. I wish I'd let you close her house coat. That's fascinating because what he's saying effectively is I don't regret murder. I just wish we'd do it with a little more decency. What the fuck? Like that's a mind bending place to put yourself, right? Because in reality, there is no decency in murder. There's no way to do it. Well, um, you're either taking a life or you're not. Um, and it's always going to suck. Uh, the most you can hope for is uh, to be justified in doing it. And yet here he is doing both. And it's, yeah, it, that's really weird. But the totality seems to be that guilt seems to be a death sentence, right? The bomb maker gets himself killed. It's not clear to me if he did that to himself or if, you know, someone set him up. That's very much, you know, ambiguous, I think, unless you have a, a stronger read on that. But uh, Carl catches a lot of guilt, immediately lets his guard down, gets killed, right? He's looking for comfort. That's why... Uh, he goes with the honey trap and then you have, you know, the, the bookkeeper, same thing, right? He feels guilty. He takes his own life. And so we can just see the team falling apart as it's wrestling with their conscience about what they're doing. And so that's what the team is, you know, the conversation around the team is looking like as they're wrestling with what they're doing. Is it right? Is it justified? What about the country? How do, what questions are being raised by the country? I found this conversation 
um, between Avner and his mom. Just mind-blowing. And I'll play it. Everyone in Europe died. Most of my family. A huge family. Psh. I never talked to you about it. I knew. You knew? So what was there to say? I didn't die because I came here. When I arrived, I walked up to the top of a hill in Jerusalem and prayed for a child. I never prayed before, but I was praying then. And I could feel every one of them praying with me. You are what we prayed for. What you did, you did for us. You did for your daughter, but also for us. Every one of the ones who died, died wanting this. We had to take it, because no one will ever give it to us. A place to be a Jew among Jews, subject to no one. I thank God for hearing my prayer. Do you want to know, Mama? Do you want me to tell you what I did? No. Whatever it took, whatever it takes, a place on earth. We have a place on earth. At last. What I find just mind-blowing about that, for one, uh, we have an analogy at play here. One is that at the beginning of the film, a conversation between Avner and his wife, uh, she says point blank to Avner, you think Israel is your mother. Mm-hmm. And now we have his mom talking. And so we can kind of imbue her with the voice of Israel um, as she's asking or, you know, she's telling him, I don't want to know about the horrible things you did to get us here. I'm just glad we're here. And it's it's wild to be okay with putting your son through that kind of experience and then saying, I don't, I put my fingers in my ears because I don't care. I don't want to know. Um, I'd rather be ignorant to the truth. Uh, that's one aspect of that. Uh, and there's a lot of aspects to this conversation. The next uh, wrinkle is we have to look at the final shot of the film, um, which is the twin towers. We finished this film looking at the twin towers uh, which, of course, in the 70s would have still been standing. But as we as we talk here on 9-11, we have to factor in that as a question that's being raised by this film. Um, as we're looking at and thinking about who attacked us and why and are they justified? We also think about what? Did they, how did we respond? Is that OK? Are we justified and why? And we also don't want to know. We are the mother, you know, if, if we're thinking about America as a country and, and parallel to Israel, uh, we're, we're doing the same thing, right? If we're the, the, the people who get to inquire and get to know about what our, our country is up to, we don't want to know. We don't want to ask those questions either. We want to just exist in this blissful ignorance of uh, we're safe, we're happy, everything's fine, and there is no blood being shed. Uh, we, we have no CIA, you know, ongoings in other countries, which is obviously wrong. Um, we're just not interested. I'm doing my best to not weigh in. I'm sorry if it creeps out here and there. I'm just trying to discuss the film and let the film exist as raising these questions and do my best to not answer it. My, my own perspectives, but it, I think it's raising that too. If you, if you 
you know, conspicuously watch this film for the conversation in totality uh, and especially the final note. And this is where contextualizing the movie, I think, helps because this was released in 2005. This is the aftermath of 9-11, the aftermath of two wars, right? Afghanistan, Iraq, and, you know, starting to think about Iran at this point. You know, that's kind of history. Thankfully, now in 2022, uh, we're not as ramped up about tensions with Iran. But 2005, man, that looked like the next one on the list. And so you have to ask these questions about how comfortable are we with where we are versus how we got here. And if you don't ask those questions, I, I suspect you open yourself up to looking over your shoulder, right? Cause that's where Avner ends. Um, he goes, he does all these acts. He never rests in peace. We see the difference in how he has sex with his wife, right? When we first open, it's careless, right? He's, uh, he's next to her. You know, a lot of the attention is on her and her experience. Um, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's intimate. It's, it's funny. They're, they're kind of laughing afterwards. Um, it's light. And then we see the second time he's having, having sex at the end of the film, he could not be more detached. She is just a body. It's not his wife. You know, his head is somewhere else completely. He's not making eye contact. His mind is thinking about, you know, his, his, his country and the, the inciting thing that sent him off to be so far away from his wife, even now as he's with her, you know, physically. Uh, and what is it? What was it for? You know, he's it's the result though, is that he's neither has peace himself, uh, nor, nor does he have safety, right? He gets off the phone call. And I love that, that call with Papa, uh, Avna, you believe me, don't you Avna? <laughs> Michael Lonsdale is amazing. I know. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, but he, he tells him point blank, you have nothing to fear from me. Yeah. And the implicit, you know, thing that he's saying is other people still want you dead. Yeah. People are coming for you. And, and I think that's the, the subversive message that's being sent. You can't go do all the things that Avner did and expect to come home to America uh, without any punishment. And I, my interpretation of this movie is if all that was precursor, our final look is at the twin towers. Uh, I think there's an implication that what happened on nine 11, um, wasn't the first stone thrown. Um, it was the biggest, um, and it was the one that hit us and therefore raised our attention. Even if, uh, it wasn't the actual inciting event. Um, it was a culmination of decades of, uh, policy, um, and I think that's as clear as I can get it without actually weighing in if I'm interpreting the film mm -hmm. correctly. Um, I mean, I would, I would agree. I would, I would. Totally it seems agree. like There's that's no other where yeah, it's, it's pointing, it's right? Very pointed at at that, and I think that I think that anybody who's done any kind of historical research could could also, you know, like look. I don't think even in this conversation, nobody is condoning something like nine eleven or Ooh. something, you know, like like any retaliation for it uh, nobody's condoning any kind of violence here we're just saying if you know anybody who's actually done research on history as to you know the united states role in anything in violence overseas and and uh, against violence done against americans it's 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 pretty evident of where this this 
is pointed at the yeah. end there. And I think that that you can say that and still be patriotic and still yeah. think 9-11 was a terrible thing that should never have happened. And and like, you know, but then you the question then rises, OK, what's the retaliation and at what level? And what is the ram? What are the ramifications of that retaliation? And you have to understand that, you know, similar in this regard, like violence begets violence begets violence begets violence. You can't kill someone's father and then have that child think that they sh- that they have been had something taken away from them in their own innocence. You know, they did nothing wrong. And yet you took their father from them, but they love their country too. And it's, it's this whole, I don't know. It goes back uh-huh. to, to imagine by John Lennon. It's like, what if there were no countries was there is no religion? I mean, the idea of that is, is fantastic. It's, um, it's also fantastical because that will never happen. There will always be people believing in certain things. There will always be people, you know, um, wanting a place to lay their head, wanting their own Israel, wanting their own United States. And, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not even saying that it's just what you do to maintain that you should ask yourself these questions. I should ask myself these questions because I've been, you know, I've been being completely frank. I have been sheltered from that my whole life. I've never, I haven't had to go to war, you know, for it. I haven't had to be told to, to pull a trigger to end someone else's life to defend uh this country so i haven't been put in those situations so as much as i would like to say uh you know i love this country and i would defend it it's it's a very hard thing to also be in the situation and do that because that is another human being who's also doing the same exact thing on their end you know i think uh, yeah 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 it's It's, it's an interesting film because i think the way i read it is largely it's an open-ended inquiry. I feel like Spielberg is making the the point to ask the questions, not to deliver uh, an exact answer. Um, because you do have to kind of read the tea leaves a little bit to walk away uh, with much of anything. Because everyone you talk to, every conversation that happens, everyone is saying why they're justified and why what they're doing is the right thing. And it's the only way. There is no other way um, is kind of the, the you know, takeaway. And it's, it's unfortunate as, as much as it is natural humanity for whatever reason. And I'm sure it's evolutionarily, you know, advantageous to be so tribal. We're all so tribal and it's, you know, in, in a lot of ways, really weird uh, as much as it is logical because we do it in all kinds of ways. Yes. We'll, we'll do it nationally. We'll do it regionally. We'll do it by the city. We'll do it by the block. Or we'll do it by our sports teams, by who we, you know, who we love in music. Like, it's so weird to go to a, a, a pro game. Like I've been to pro games and in the lobby, a fight breaks out between this team and that team, uh, fans of this team and that team. How weird is that? Yeah. Yeah. Something's so utterly pointless, pointless, you know, and yet here we are people fighting had one drink too many and uh, mad because my guy's lost and you're making fun of me for losing and, you know, pop right in the kiss. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, But if we can get that riled up over, you know, something as inconsequential as a a sports team, you know, uh, home becomes such a, you know, much easier thing to, to justify in your minds. Right. Yeah. And that's where you hear the, the PLI 
PLO guy uh, talking to Abner. You know, you don't know what it is to not have a home. Yes, I was just going to bring up that scene. Right? You say it's yeah. nothing, but then you have a home to go back to. Yeah. Home is everything. And I I think that that, that, is, that scene is necessary. In fact, I, I wish there were more of the, uh, there was, I wish I would, there it was longer or we had more time with that guy, with that Palestinian guy, because like we need both sides, you know, we need, and I don't think that we fully got the Palestinian side here. I, you know, I, I think that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not that story. Fine. You know, but his, his moment that he had, then that actor, oh my God, is un- unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Because I saw anger. I saw sadness. And and the thing that that like kind of got me a little bit was, and I actually, and I, I guess, you know, this now that I'm watching it again, right? Um, is Avner's response to him was so angry. Mm. Was so angry. It was not like I'm hearing you at all. He wasn't hearing this guy at all. He was like completely oblivious. And I feel like maybe earlier on in the, in the film before some of the other kills happened, if he had talked to this guy, it might, his response might've been a little different, but you can see in his face, Abner is just like, like Mm. you are, you are the scum of the earth, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's wild because, and I think, you know, on that note, like it's, weird to me how invested people in the West get over that conversation. You know, people are weirdly invested in something they, they have no stake in. Yeah. There's a, there's so much context and there's so much, you know, back and forth between what happened in Israel and Palestine and, you know, why it happened and what's happening now and, and why it happened in the first, like, and I have a recommendation, you know, that will help anybody who wants to learn more about that. Uh, whole conflict that's really enlightening and, and useful just to use as a primer. Um, but it, yeah, I just, I've listened to so many, I don't know, quote unquote armchair experts who really miss the boat. It's so, it's such a weird thing to be so emotionally invested in. And I'll, obviously it comes down a lot to religious belief and perspective and um, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I have no stake in the game. And so for me, it's a lot easier to be objective and say, you know, call balls and strikes and, um, and want the best for everyone involved. And it's complex for sure. But this movie, I thought that, and you're right. I mean, you know, that you don't get the full scope, but I don't think you get the full scope from anyone. Like we don't have the full scope from Israel because they barely touch on the six day war. Um, and it's more hinted at than discussed why it happened. Um, was Israel justified, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, it's wild. It, you get a little bit of uh, world war two Holocaust, you know, that, that conversation with the mom, she touches on it and it's touched on in the PLO conversation in the safe house. Yeah. This movie is, I thought just does a really excellent job. I think the, the thing that I love about it the most, um, now thinking about it from a writing standpoint is we don't spend a lot of time discussing like murder tactics or specific targets this guy, right? We're uh, hit number four. We're going after this guy. This guy did X, Y, Z. He's part of the plan. Here's how we're going to take him down. You're going to be in position. We just kind of cut to it, right? What we do spend lots of time discussing though, philosophy, philosophy of tactics, um, the philosophy of home and the cost of home, 
the morality, the guilt. Um, what does success look like? What does it mean? Like we spend a lot of time wrestling with these bigger ideas. And I love that because that's what this movie is about. So make it about that and spend a lot of your time raising questions, making us think for ourselves. Uh, and to some degree, having a little bit of footing in this world will go a long way to uh, appreciating the conversation. Um, but even without that, you can still pull out a lot. You can still really digest quite a bit because uh, we're, we're so in tune with Abner and what he's going through. And you're right, man, that is a really interesting perspective whenever he gets upset and he starts attacking. Like he's almost giving up his identity, uh, his, his covert operation identity to just put this random guy in his place. Like you don't know him. He's not your target or else you would have smoked him a long time ago. Instead, you know, you should just be like, yeah, I totally get it. <sighs> right. <laughs> like, right. Just go play the part. Nope. Can't let it go. We're going to have this one out. You don't get it. You're your animals or whatever. This guy's like, whoa, man, you Germans. He doesn't realize. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, kind of German, but he's actually Israeli. And yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening. Uh, yeah, this is a really well-written film. It helps that you have someone like Eric Roth, you know, writing it. But fantastic. I don't know. Uh, I think that's as much as I can get out without getting uh, my own, you know, foot in the door. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I agree. I agree. Um, fantastic film. This is the reason why Spielberg is brilliant and and will be one of the greatest forever, for sure. I have my issues with him, but I think a lot of that stems from movies that I think that are not of substance yeah. that I think is, is the thing that makes him great. You're not, I mean, yes, you're going to, you know, we, we did Raiders last week and, 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 and we've done um, uh, uh, Jurassic Park and stuff, but like the timeless stuff for me is, is movies like this, like Munich. Uh, so yeah, amazing story, amazingly acted, amazingly shot and directed and, the camera work is is really great and it tells a really amazing story and yeah it's not something that i could watch every year <laughs> right. uh, honestly but once every five or ten years i yeah. you know just to remind me of what what that man can do is uh definitely amazing totally agree yeah my god yeah. recommendation for the week yeah so um i have been talking to my wife about shia labeouf lately and and so Shia he's LaBeouf. an interesting guy. What? Shia LaBeouf. Have you seen, I've shown you that, that short film about Shia LaBeouf, right? I don't think so. Oh my God. I will put it in the show notes. It's Rob Cantor. It's a musical. Um, it's actually a, a, a theatric stage play. It's oh like my this God. 10 minute sketch uh, about Shia LaBeouf. And it's, it's about him. It doesn't even have a minute. It's about okay. him. And it's, okay easily my favorite thing ever put on the internet <laughs> oh my god okay yes no so please weird. share please share so good okay yeah as you were <laughs> wow okay um well i i think he's an um, incredible actor and an incredible artist to, in general i just think he's he's uh, amazing i think he's very sick um in a lot of ways hmm. first he was sick because of drugs and alcohol and now i think he's sick for other reasons but nevertheless he is he is unafraid when it comes to creating things. And um, so I'm going to recommend Honey Boy. Uh, I just loved this movie. And it, it's it's just a movie about his dad. And he plays his dad in the film. 
um, and his relationship and, and the, the boy in it, uh, Noah Jupe is incredible as well. So the acting, the writing, the, just the whole story in general and the fearlessness of him writing and, and doing this movie in general and then showing his father is like, that's the kind of stuff that makes waves for me in art is this, this desire to make something so bad that you know, you're going to hurt people that you love. And yet you feel like you need to do it anyway, whether that's cathartic for yourself or mm-hmm. cathartic um, in a way to help other people. It doesn't matter. It's just, you make it anyway. And it's a great example of that. So honey boy. Wow. Nice reco. Yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend a book. It's called The Palestine-Israel Conflict, A Basic Introduction. It's by Gregory Harms and Todd M. Ferry. This was a book I picked up just trying to get my footing to understand uh, what happened and is happening in Israel and Palestine, that whole conflict. And I thought it did a really fantastic job. It's the kind of book where it doesn't tell you what to think. It just kind of lays it all out. And it's the kind of book that... I think would frustrate both sides <laughs> and kind of like a referee. That's probably what you want. Yeah. You don't want one person getting to tell the story. Like that was not a foul. Of course, you know, of course you don't think so that, that that's your guy. And so this, I thought it did a really good job of laying the, the, the groundwork and some important moments, obviously not everything. Uh, it's a basic introduction, uh, not a point by point, you know, breakdown analysis. Uh, and it's digestible um, and it starts uh, like a million years ago. Literally, we start uh, way back so that you can kind of see how the land developed, how the people developed there. And then you kind of gradually see how everything moment by moment transitions uh, through the First World War, before the First World War, of course, through the whole shebang. Um, And it gives you a very strong understanding of uh, the big moments as well as some of the smaller moments that invoke a lot of emotion and, and frustration um, and just different ways to think about what's going on. Uh, I thought he does a, a, an incredible job. I've actually wanted to make a, a docu-series, like an eight or 10 part Netflix style docu-series on that, you know, using that book as a foundation and expanding it a little bit based on some other things that I think are relevant to the conversation. And yeah, and just, you know, call it a primer, um, make it a series, whatever. Yeah, fascinating, really useful um, to, to just kind of get some basics down because that's such a hot button thing. And anytime you hear anyone, you know, passionate about it, it's easy to get lost within the first two seconds, uh, such as this movie. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I recommend that. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Stay tuned as uh, we continue or come to the end of Spielberg September as we take a look at Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, so we'll see what Spiels has to has to say with the, the final last movie ever of Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> hardly. Oh, hardly. Um, yeah. yeah. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note if it's something you want us to, to cover kinds of things you find interesting yeah and if you want to leave a note on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash munich and uh i love that you made the quote of the day from from the queen so this past week uh we lost queen elizabeth ii um uh, god rest her soul 
And uh, so our quote of the day today is from her, Queen Elizabeth II. It has perhaps always been the case that the waging of peace is the hardest form of leadership of all. That waging of peace, that's an amazing way to say that. And she was a, she was a woman of very few words. I mean, there's not a whole lot of, of sound bites over the 70 plus years of her reign that she just, she didn't, she didn't say very much. She's a woman of few words. And so when she does say something, something as incredibly insightful as this is, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people feel different ways. I don't have a particularly strong affection for the monarchy and I find it weird um, in so many ways, but at the same time, we were born with her um, and, you know, to a large extent, I thought she would outlive us all. Uh, she's yeah. been a fixture, right? And the longest reigning monarch, um, as far as we know, as far as I know, in, in all of history. Yeah, 70 some odd years spanning is, I'm sure everyone at this point has heard all the, you know, wild things that she's overseen from her time in power. Uh, if we want to call it power, that's a whole weird conversation. But that phrase that you pointed out, waging of peace, like, I love that so much. It's, it's so perfect because all the recognition, you know, when we usually look at leaders is how they wage war. Um, and it's so much easier to throw a punch than to talk someone out of one, right? To defuse a bomb is really, really hard to push the button is not. Um, and we just don't idolize peacemakers at all, let alone enough. Um, no one really has a, a soft spot for, you know, Edward the Peaceful or whatever, right? It, and it sucks because is there anything more important, you know, than than finding peace? Um, that's when all the good stuff happens. Um, that's when, you know, people actually get to uh, have love and, you know, family and community and uh, get, get to enjoy a good meal, right? And so I... It's, it's unfortunate that we don't respect and honor peacemaking um, as much as, you know, war, war making. Yeah. Well said. Well said, Queen. Yes, Queen. Yes, Queen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we miss you. Uh, Godspeed. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. I had a, 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 a reasonable time. Covering. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to say. I had a good time talking about Munich. Um, but no, I, I definitely learned a lot. Thank you for your insight there, Wes. And if you guys could share us, subscribe, review, all that stuff, it helps tremendously. Share us with your friends. Uh, review us on, in, on any platform you get this. It all helps. And if there's a film that you'd like to see us cover, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you, uh, and we may cover it. Who knows? Uh, and until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.